All right, recapping what we did before lunch, I'm saying evangelism is a lifestyle change. It's not an event we add into our calendar. It's not an event that the church puts on. It's actually a lifestyle change for both us and the church where we merge our universes, get our friends to become their friends, start working intentionally on going to their things and that way they'll come to our things. Also hospitality, coffee, dinner, gospel, learning to listen properly rather than trying to think, what am I going to say? How can I rebut their argument? No, 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 just listen to what they say. Eventually you might get a chance to tell your story. They won't often say, what is Christianity about? They just say, well, how, how, how are you a Christian? And now there's a chance for you to get the gospel in through testimony. But now let's say you do get a chance to tell the gospel quite directly or explicitly. What I like to do sometimes is say, well, if, do you want to hear a story that explains where I'm coming from? And then you tell them just any story about Jesus from the Bible. And the beauty of a story is... It's not giving them an argument where they're trying to try to argue. It's actually a story where they're, they're having to listen to your worldview in story form. And they actually have to see the world from your point of view. And that's, that's how stories work. And so you just pick any story about Jesus. You don't have to memorise it word for word. Just any story about Jesus. Your favourite one from the Bible and you just retell it to them. So one of my favourite ones is Jesus loved telling this story where he talks about two men going to the temple to pray. One man prays like this. So sometimes I like that. Sometimes I like the story where Jesus went to a dinner that a religious leader put on and this woman comes with a very shady reputation and starts washing Jesus' feet. So that's another favourite story of mine. And so there are a lot of these little stories I like to tell. And that really, really works well. And if you want to check it out in much more intense form, Wycliffe will have a two-day seminar teaching you how to tell Bible stories. Christine Dillon has a book called Storytelling the Gospel, and she's got a website that you can check out now, Christine Dillon, Storytelling the Gospel. And people on this website will go on and share even their own stories of how they use stories to tell their friends about Jesus. Once a year, I take one for the team and I go on a crusader ski camp where I have to tell the gospel. <laughs> I know, a subsidised ski trip at Mount Hotham. But the payback is at lunchtime, I have to tell the gospel to teenagers uh, in between a day of skiing. That's the last thing they want. I talk from the Bible, so what I do is I tell them a story about Jesus. And they love it. They actually really love it. And every day they go, what's the story going to be today? And what's tomorrow's story going to be? And I usually tell it to them in this way. I say, I'm going to tell a story now. I'm going to tell it to you three times. First time, I want you to imagine what's going on. Second time, I want you to remember what's going on. And third time, I want you to retell the story back to me. And they take it as this challenge. They love it. Last year was amazing because we had this kid... Year 10, Orthodox Jew, goes to an Orthodox Jewish school. Parents send him along on this Christian ski camp. He's angry at organised religion. He's angry that his parents have forced Orthodox Judaism down his throat. Now he's on a Christian ski camp. But he loved the stories about Jesus. And on the last day, he's the one that volunteered and retold the story about Jesus back to all the high school kids. And he told me at the end of the camp, thank you, thank you so much. I love the way you teach the Bible. And so if you're in any sort of Sunday school ministry or Bible study ministry to any age group, SRE ministry, try, try these things, storytelling the scriptures. So tell a story for, about Jesus. And, after, and let's say you are in a one-on-one conversation with your friend. After you've told your favourite story about Jesus in your own words, you, you, uh, you throw it back at them and say, well, what do you like in that story? And that's a question they can't get wrong. There's no wrong answer. It's a safe question. And then you ask them, is there anything you don't understand in that story? And that's a safe question. You can't get that question wrong. And you let the question hang. You don't try to answer it. think, huh. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that would be hard to understand. Just leave it like that. And then they realise you're not the expert. You're not going to come back at them all the time. And then you throw in a third question. Well, what do you think this story teaches us about Jesus? And you, you, if you get time, 
I usually find I don't have time for this one. What do you think this teaches us about people in general? And then finally, what if this story is true, what do you think God is telling you in this story? But these first two are really safe, and sometimes they want you to answer the question. But it's a feel thing. It's a feel thing. And I find it's a really safe, organic way of telling the gospel, and it's in story form. And you can't argue against a story. Another way of talking about Jesus is, and I learned this from Timothy Keller, and he says he got this from a New Testament scholar called Simon Gattacol, but Timothy Keller calls it the manger, cross, king story. So you just got to remember three things to say about Jesus. You just say, oh, Jesus came to us as a human being. So born in a manger. You don't have to say born in a manger, but this will help you remember what to say. Okay, so what do you Christians believe anyway? Oh, okay, this is what we believe, that Jesus was God, but he came to us as a human 2,000 years ago. And then he died on a cross for us to save us, but he didn't stay dead. And one day he's going to come again and set up a kingdom here on earth. And that's all you have to say. That's, that's the whole gospel. And if you want to be deep and think, what on earth just went on there? And you want to put your theology caps on. Here you're actually telling them about the incarnation and the whole reversal of values that happens in Christianity where God becomes a human, the rich becomes a poor, the strong becomes a weak one. Here you're actually telling them about the atonement where God saves us from our sins, and that's quite an individual thing. He saves me, not my parents, not my nation. He saves me from my sins. And here you're talking about the future restoration, and this is quite a collective thing. Now we're part of Team Jesus setting up a kingdom on earth because that's a whole tension of Christianity. It's individual, but it's collective at the same time. And I explain it, it's like, if I want to play cricket, that's an individual decision. But guess what? I have to join a team to play cricket. And if you want to become a Christian, yeah, that's an individual decision between you and God. But now you've joined a team. You actually are part of a church, a body of Christ now. And that's a bit that we've struggled to explain in Western Christianity. If I've made a decision, now why do I, why do I go to church? Like, Jesus is my saviour. Like, why do I have to worry about church on Sunday? So you're trying to explain that. And also, now that Jesus forgives my sins... What am I meant to do between now and he comes again? And as someone said, that's the weakness in two ways live. That's why the planet disappears in the last frame. Like there is nothing to do on earth until Jesus comes again with that explanation. But this one, no, no, no. You are now part of a kingdom, part of the restoration. We now have a mission to bring Jesus' love, mercy and justice on this planet. So that's actually something for us to do for Team Jesus, I, I call it. So, and I find like this works in any context. So let's say I'm leading Lord's Supper, and in Lord's Supper you have one minute to explain the elements. I say, wow, today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper where we remember 2,000 years ago Jesus actually ate and drank with his followers. And it's a symbol of how he died on the cross for us to rescue us from our sins. And it looks forward to that day when Jesus comes and we're going to have a meal with Jesus at the banquet. Can you see how that works? It's almost seamless. So that's, uh, that's one way of remembering how to tell the gospel in a seamless way. All right, so that's Jesus. Now, at some stage, someone will always ask, I'll save you the problem, ask, the, the, the time of asking, you haven't mentioned sin. You haven't mentioned sin. And if you came to last night's youth event, you were thought, there was no sin. He never mentioned sin. I never heard the word sin. And that's because as Christians, every tradition, every denomination has what I call its shibboleth, badge marker, or tribal marker words. So you're sitting there listening, listening. Is he going to say sin? Is he going to say sin? He said sin. That's it. He, he told them the gospel. He is one of us. He's off our tradition. He's off our denomination because I mentioned the shibboleth word. It's a badge marker word. It's a tribal marker, identity marker. He is one of us because he said the word sin. Now, with every tradition, we have different shibboleths. So John Chapman, who was a big um, Australian evangelist, 
he said back in his day it was the blood. People were saying, listening, is he going to mention the blood? And until he said the blood of Jesus, they wouldn't say, no, nah, no. Nah. But once he said the blood, yep, you have mentioned the gospel. And I remember one time after one of these events, a lady said to me, you didn't mention the word repent. It's not the gospel until you tell them to repent. And I thought, well, I didn't use a word, but I did use an illustration of how I was driving the wrong way down a one-way street truck was coming the other way and I had to do a U-turn to save my life and in the same way we're all going down the wrong way and we need to do a U-turn and follow Jesus and leave behind whatever and I thought okay, I didn't use the word repent but I think the idea was there and so what's happening here is we can always use the mention the idea without having to use the actual words and so we can actually communicate the idea of sin without actually using the word sin. But then you might ask me, well, why don't we use the word sin? And we can. There are times I do use the word sin. We can. But words change meaning over times. And one word can have one meaning in one audience and have a completely different meaning in a different audience. So just think of the word dumb thong or gay they've all changed meanings so so you might say thongs mean flip-flops they've always meant flip-flops in my community well try using that word in a year 10 scripture lesson you do not use the word thong because it has a different meaning in a different audience and you can keep insisting well it meant flip-flops in my day yeah but it doesn't mean flip-flops in this context and sin changes meaning over time so it might have one meaning in our traditional context but it changes meaning. So Francis Spufford, who wrote the book Unapologetic. Am I on? Okay. So he wrote the book Unapologetic. He was an atheist writer who became a Christian. So now he wrote this book, Unapologetic, to explain to his atheist friends why he should become a Christian. So it's actually very good to read books to read to realise how an atheist thinks through this who's become a Christian. And you're not going to agree with every single chapter in the book. There are chapters you're not going to agree with. But he has a chapter on sin that you will find interesting. He says the word sin in non-Christian communities means something completely different to what it means in Christian communities. To a non-Christian atheist, the word sin means... Um, a naughty pleasure that you have a giggle about afterwards, like lingerie, chocolates, or ice cream. So, oh, 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 look at this. Isn't this sinful? We're eating ice cream. So that's the meaning it has. So it's sort of lost its, its original meaning. So in that sense, he says, we have to come up with other words and other ideas. Fortunately, the Bible does give us other words. So in the Dictionary of Biblical Terms, there's an author called Henry Blosher. He says the Bible has like something like 50 different terms for the word sin. So I'll just give you a few now. So we're, we're used to the idea of um, sin being a trespass, as in you have broken a law. We're also used to the idea that sin might make us um, unclean or it might bring shame and dishonour to God, or we might be falling short of the mark God wants us to have. Any other ideas of sin that you can think of? Transgression. Transgression. Okay, that's like trespass, so transgression, breaking a law, overstepping a line. All right, anything else? Atrocity. Was that right? Atrocity. Yeah, that's right. And the Bible is a language of abomination, doesn't it? As well. Okay, any other ideas? Hmm? Wrong? In what sense? Like, which one? <laughs> wrong? Okay, I'll just put wrong up there. Rebellion? Rebellion. So I'll put that up there. I'll, 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 I'll give you some help. There's um, the sheep that got lost. There's lost. There's, um, it seems something like blindness. Broken, yep, and I think that's what iniquity is trying to show. Broken and iniquity means to be bent, twisted. Uh, okay, um, enslaved. 
And what was the sin? So Jesus, when he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, what was the sin? Jesus told this story for those who were what? Confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Their sin was self-righteousness. And then he could go, 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 go on. Okay, so, so like, like we have... And, then, and so therefore, the salvation blessing for this would be to be declared innocent because here you're guilty of a trespass and so now you're going to be justified or innocent. The salvation blessing of being unclean would be to be clean, made holy. Shame and dishonour will be restoration. And where God, who once turned his face away, is now going to turn his face to you. He's going to show you his face. So de- just like hospitality, now do a word search for face in the Bible. It's everywhere. Falling short, God, God makes you bring near. So those who were once far away, God brings near. Or reconciliation, we could put reconciliation. Atrocity, abomination. Ooh, that's a hard one. I'll have to come back to the line. Wrong. He makes right. Okay, yeah, justice. Okay, lost, you're found. Blind, you see, or light. Broken, healing. Restoration. Made whole or perfect. Um, enslaved, you're set free or ransomed. Self-righteousness, it's almost like you're humbled. Yeah. Those who humble themselves will be lifted up. All right, so. Missiologists and anthropologists say these are the top three for all the cultures in the world. All cultures, some have an idea of these three. But typically, the West went for this model, the Middle East goes for this model and Asians go for this model. So Martin Luther is always feeling guilty. And so in the Bible he discovers he can be declared innocent, justified by God. A Middle Eastern man, a missionary said he once met a Middle Eastern man who just committed adultery, cheated on his wife, but now is on his way to the mosque to worship and he was worried that he was now unclean. And now he had to do all the ceremonial cleansing to get himself clean, to get in the mosque. So he wasn't worried that he'd broken a law. He was worried more that he was unclean. Asians much more about shame and dishonour. And here's the interesting thing. I reckon now the West has become so postmodern, so post-reached, so post-Christian, so post-Western, we've done the whole circle... And we've rediscovered shame and dishonour. And so they found out with professional sports people, like rugby league players, you can keep telling them, don't get yourselves into trouble, don't cheat on your wives, don't gamble, don't bet on the game, don't do sex, don't do drugs, don't do alcohol. And they look at you like, says who? Like, I'm a law unto, unto, unto myself. You can't say, well, there's a law that says you shouldn't do that. So what do they say to them instead? Don't do this because you will bring the game into... Disrepute, that's a language of shame and dishonour. You'll shame your friends. You have, brought, you have dishonoured the code. So it's a language of shame and honour that's now, now working. And now John Ronson, not a Christian, has a book called You've Been Publicly Shamed. So now with online social media, every time you do a misstep, there's public shaming on online media. So we've gone to a world where we've moved away from absolute laws... Because in modernity, we believed in the existence of laws. Post-modernity, we see laws as constructs made up by authority figures to control us. So I'm not going to listen to your laws. You just made them up to control me. I'm just going to be true to myself. Uh, And so now we're part of a tribe, and in tribes, we have shaming. So I think this one works much better now in our post-Western society. So when I'm asked to give talks to high schoolers at chapel... I could walk in and say, we've all broken laws, we're guilty, we've rebelled, and we need to be forgiven. They look at me 
and they're just disgusted. They roll their eyes and think, who are you to tell us about laws? They're just man-made, arbitrary social constructs that you're just now imposing upon us to make us feel guilty as your power game, as your meta-narrative you're imposing upon us. But if I say, there's a God who loves us and he made us, but we have not worshipped him and so we have dishonoured him, they look at me like, I've never thought of it that way. So somehow shame and dishonour seems to work in high school and teenage and university age groups. So when I use the language of shame and dishonour, no one rolls their eyes. Everyone looks at me, okay, I want to hear more of what you have to say. Um, And it's interesting, you're, you're studying Acts. So the apostles, when they preached to the Jews who had the scriptures, who believed in laws, who worshipped in temples, who should have known better, they say this, God sent you the Messiah, you killed him, you have broken laws, you're guilty, and they say, wow, what must we do to repent? So they're using this category to the Jews, who had the scriptures, who should have known better, but to the non-Jews, to the pagans, who don't have the scriptures, who don't go to the temples, who don't know better, this is how they preach. In Acts 16 and 17, there's a God who loves you, who made you, He makes your crops grow. He sends you rain, but you have not honoured him. It's actually shame and dishonour language. And I think more and more now in the West, where they don't have the Bible, they don't worship in churches, they don't know better, this seems to be working uh, better and better. This one, falling short, is a good one too. So look at what Paul does in Acts 17. He walks in, he sees all these idols. He says, wow. You've got a lot of idols. You have a lot of idols. And you've even got one to the unknown God because you don't know this God's name. Well, come a bit further and I'll show you who this God is. It's actually Jesus. So he could have gone two ways. He could have gone in, you have a lot of idols. Well, guess what? You have broken the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. You're guilty. You need forgiveness. But no, they don't know better. They don't know the scripture. So instead he goes, you're actually moving in the right direction. You want to worship. Who of us doesn't want to worship? And you actually want to cover all the bases in case there's a God out there you don't know. Well, guess what? There is a God out there you don't know. Come a bit further. You're actually looking for Jesus and not knowing it. So that's so, so showing you're on a good thing, but now you just have to come further and find Jesus. So you are falling short. So I think that's another way we have of explaining sin. Oh, uh, Timothy Keller loves using this one, enslaved. So, uh, of course, we can't use the language of slavery. So what I like to do is we all have to live for something. Otherwise, we've got nothing to live for. We all have to live for something. But what do we live for now owns us. It owns us and it will destroy us because it asks too much of us or we will destroy ourselves chasing it. It owns us, but Jesus sets us free. Because now we can live for Jesus, and Jesus is kind, he forgives, he fulfills. So last night at the youth thing, whoever was there, which model of sin did I use last night at the youth group thing? Does anyone know? Enslave? No. Hmm? Lost? No, that's right. I shouldn't have put you on the spot. Yes? Self-righteousness. Thank you. Uh, that we all like to rank ourselves and think we're better than the other person there. And so the man in the prayer says, Dear God, I thank you. I go to church twice a day, so I'm better than those people who don't go to church at all. I thank you I don't cheat on my wife, so I'm better than those people who do cheat on their wives. I thank you I'm a good father. I hug my children. I tell them I love them, so I'm better than those fathers who don't do that. I thank you I'm generous. I give to World Vision, to Compassion, to Medicine Sans Frontier. We sponsor a child, so I'm better than those who don't sponsor a child. So what's he doing? He's ranking himself and making himself better than other people. His sin... He's actually a good person. He's done good things. You would love a person who goes to church, doesn't cheat on his wife, hugs his children and sponsors a child, wouldn't you? It's that he thinks he's better than other people because of that. So his sin is self-righteousness. Then I say, well, hang on, don't we all do that? When we turn our lights off on Earth Day and we see those people who kept their lights on on Earth Day, hey, what are you guys doing? When we use the eco shopping bag and that guy's got the plastic shopping bag, hey, what are we thinking? When we use racially inclusive language and that person is a racist, what do we think? We're ranking ourselves and thinking we're a bit better than those people. 
That's the sin of self-righteousness. So what I'm saying is we actually have a rich vocab that we can use to explain sin to our friends without having to come in through the front door. You have rebelled, you're guilty, because they're not hearing that anymore, I don't think. And we can keep going through that door if you want, but the Bible gives us many, 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 many other ways of trying to explain sin, which sneaks it in a bit more. What's also changed now that we're in the 21st century is this. We used to think this. We used to think this. I'm going to tell you something that's true. So now you're going to believe it. And if you believe it now, do it. And typically it's how most sermons and Bible studies are set up. I'm going to give you something true in the Bible. Here are some ideas for you to believe from the Bible. Now put it into practice. So think about that. That's how sermons and Bible studies work. But now more and more, people are realising, especially in the 21st century, it's working the other way around. Whether we like it or not, rightly or wrongly, people are finding, hey, this is livable or doable. If it's livable or doable... That makes it believable. If it's believable, maybe it's true. So that's how people journey into the Christian belief now. They start seeing that what we have is livable and doable. Huh. That makes it more believable. And if it's believable, maybe what we have is true. So, so I'll say a bit more about this later. So I remember... We've been reaching out to this couple and I can share maybe more about how we've been doing this. But it came to this point where the husband said to the wife, we've got to believe what these guys are believing. But whatever it is they believe, we have to believe the same thing they believe. So they've seen something that's livable, so now they want to believe it. And sooner or later they're going to realise, wow, it's true. That also means the Bible's given us many categories of knowledge So we're used to salvation knowledge. This is what you need to know to be saved. But the Bible also has providence knowledge. This is what you need to know to survive on a daily basis. So just think in Acts, and you're studying Acts again, remember? Agapus actually has, I have a prophecy, I have a word from God. There's going to be a famine, so everyone has to store up on potatoes. And you think, wow, that's not going to get me saved. Potatoes aren't going to keep me out of the flames of hell and get me to heaven. But they will help me survive on a day-by-day basis. And think some of the Lord's Prayer is salvation language. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But give us this day our daily bread. Can you see how there's both categories? And I think there's a third category, similar to providence. Wisdom knowledge. What is wise? Not, what, not what's right or wrong. But what's wise to do? So in Proverbs, you have a verse that says, don't answer a fool according to their folly. Then right next to another verse that says, do answer a fool according to their folly. And you think, well, which one's is it? Is it right or wrong? No, no, that's a wrong question. There'll be a time when it's right and a time when it's not. So in other words, what is the wise thing to do? So what I'm proposing, we've typically tried to use salvation as the entry point. Like, you are guilty, you're going to hell, you need to be forgiven. And I think once upon a time, that was the existential cry of a typical person. It was Martin Luther's cry, I, I'm wrong, I'm guilty, I need to be saved. But right now, most people think, what do I need to survive? And if we can equip them to survive, give them providence and wisdom knowledge from the Bible, they're starting to realise, wow, what Christians have is livable. It's doable, it's way more doable than what we have going on right now. Maybe it's believable and maybe it's true. So what I'm proposing is use wisdom as an entry point to, to the gospel and wisdom will lead to salvation knowledge rather than the other way around. Also means whether we like it or not, 
rightly or wrongly, this is what's happening. So, rightly or wrongly, whether we like it or not, this is what's happening. People are belonging first, then they're behaving, and then they're believing. So the sequence used to be, supposedly, you would believe. I make a decision to follow Jesus, so I'm going to start behaving like a Christian. I'm going to stop smoking, stop gambling, and then I'm going to find a church to go to. Now it's happening the other way around. People will find a belonging with Christian friends, and bit by bit they start behaving like a Christian. They start to come to church, but they're not Christians yet. They start sending their kids to the youth group because it's good for them but they're not Christians yet, they start putting themselves on rosters. This is the crazy thing. Our non-Christian friends are now on, on the morning tea roster. They're setting up the church roster, but they don't believe they're sending their kids to youth group. But bit by bit, they will start believing. So I think that's a sequence. So we're always thinking, how can I get my friends to hear about Jesus? Well, we need to do that. We need to tell them about Jesus. But it's also, how can I get my friends belonging with Christians and how can I get them behaving like Christians? So again, it's wisdom. Show them we have something livable and doable. And, and, you know, there was one time I was speaking at some dialogue dinner event where we invited our non-Christian friends, and then the non-Christians could ask any question about Christianity. And one couple said, what do you Christians believe happens to the soul when you die? I thought, wow, again, it depends which denomination you belong to. But I said, well, a typical belief is when you die, your soul goes to be with Jesus in paradise. But when Jesus comes again, your body will rise from its grave and be reunited with its soul. And as I'm saying, I think, boy, I don't think I can believe this myself. This is so unbelievable. And this couple went, huh. Yeah, we'll believe that. We're happy to believe that. And suddenly you realize what's happening is they're looking for belonging. They found belonging. And it's almost like, what do I have to believe to be part of your belonging? You want to believe that about the soul? Okay, I will believe that about the soul. So belonging, behaving, and, and, then, and then belief. And, and anything is believable once you've had belonging and behavior. All right, what I'll do is I have like, so many. And again, it's, we're not talking about the truth status. We're talking about the believability status of, of a truth claim. All right, I've got 20 minutes for question time. Let's throw it open to you guys. Okay, so the question, what happens when you're stuck in a relationship? Okay, so everything is a good gift from a good God to enjoy. This is a dynamic in life, and we learn it in Ecclesiastes. Everything is a good gift from a good God to enjoy. Don't make anything more of it than what it is. And don't make anything less of it than what it is. Just get the tension right. So everything is a good gift from good God to enjoy. And it's the same with friendships. So we have all these friends that God brings into our life. And they are a good gift from a good God for us to enjoy. So don't try to make more of them what they are. Don't make less of them than what they are. Just enjoy them as good things in and of themselves. So in that sense, we've been put in these people's lives. And who knows, maybe God providentially will help, if we do all these things, bring these people to faith. But if it doesn't happen, that's okay. Just enjoy the friendships for what they are. Otherwise, we're trying to make too much of the friendship than what it is. And we're, what counsellors call, we're over-investing into the relationship. Mm. Yeah, I think so. So is, the question was, is there a time we should stop asking people to come to church? I think yes, because they said they don't want to come. And that's it. You've done your best. You've actually asked them and they don't want to come. So there's no point saying, do you want to come again? Do you want to come again? And, and, and they say, no, I've said no. So I think if they do want to come, they will come now. You, you put the invite out there. And it doesn't hurt every now and then say, hey, we have a family, special family service. Do you want to come? But you've asked and they said no. So I think all those other levers we, we can try to use, like, like there are many other levers I, I put up there. And again, it's trusting God's providence. We're doing all we can in our natural human means, but God in his supernatural personal agency will do, might or might not. So we're just trusting God. Uh, so, so again, again, don't over-invest, don't under-invest. We've asked them, they've said no. Maybe ask them again if something special comes up, like Christmas or family or puppet service, or maybe ask them some of the other things. But, but use the other levers as well and trust that God in his providence will do his work. Yeah. 
Okay, so the question was, they want the argument. So yes, there's a place for logical um, arguments and reasoning, um, but people think they want that, but they're not as open as they think they are, so the heart's still closed. So they, they did an analysis of Brexit, and they worked out that uh, after the months and months and months and months and months and months and months of debate of whether they leave or not leave, everyone voted exactly the same way as they did before all the debates. And if you voted to leave, everyone in your network also voted to leave. If you voted to stay, everyone in your network also voted to stay. So it was never about the arguments, the reasons, or the logic. In the end, it was about which community you belong to. So your plausibility structures are very much determined by your community. So I think argumentation has a place. So what it is, is this. How do people change their minds? It's this dialectic, this conversation between presuppositions that we have already before we hear anything and then the evidence that's presented to us. And again, we always think it's about the evidence, but it never is. So if I showed you the UFO, you would explain it away because your presuppositions say there's no such thing as UFOs. But I'll give you an example. When I went to med school, they taught me that ulcers were caused by acid. And to treat an ulcer, you had to reduce the acid by antacids, sometimes an operation, uh, change diet. Then a Western Australian doctor, Barry Marshall, says, it's not an acid, it's a bacteria. you just got to give an antibiotic. And no one in the medical community believed him because in our community, that's not what we believed or practiced. So he puts out data, evidence, Journals, again, no one believes them. And you can't, you can't get it published because no one believes your findings. So it's all predetermined. But bit by bit, there's a cumulative weight of evidence. And after all, there's this paradigm shift because the presuppositions can't contain the evidence that's being presented to it. So what people say changes minds is actually a cumulative case where bit by bit, as evidence comes and evidence comes, the original presuppositions can no longer contain the evidence and people were forced to change their presuppositions. So what that means for Christians is we have to attack both. So we attack the presuppositions through community. People get their presuppositions from the, from the people they belong to. So it's belonging that changes presuppositions. But there's still always a role for reasoned argument, so bit by bit. But then you've got to think, are my friends really listening? And more often than not, they're not. But it also means there's still a place for this. I'll just share um, something else. Something really encouraging, and I got this from Timothy Keller. In Acts 16, you have three conversions. You have Lydia. You have the slave girl. And you have the... The jail keeper, is that what he's called? Let's call him. Jailer. The jailer, that's it. The jailer. So what converts Lydia? In the end, it's a reasoned argument. Because she's quite a cognitive thinker. She's a God searcher. And she finds herself in a small group investigating the scriptures over and over again. And Paul gives her a reasoned argument. She's a cognitive thinker. The slave girl, probably no education, in a very dark place, demon-possessed, abused by all the men who own her, yet she can't get out of these abusive relationships. So what converts her is a power encounter. Someone stronger than the demons, someone stronger than the men who own her in her life comes in and frees her. Jesus comes. It's a power encounter. The jailer. Now, he's... A blue-collar worker, he's a jailer. So think security guard at the local shopping mall. Think cleaner at the hospital. He hates church. It's, 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 it's boring. The sermons are dry. It's too effeminate. It's cupcakes for morning tea. It's doily. It's flower rosters. And then they try to do all this emotional thing, like make you stand and sing he hates that. If he comes, it's out, out, and out of duty and honour, maybe twice a year, Christmas and Easter, just to keep the wife happy. But if he goes, he stands on the side of the, the fence. He doesn't want to do morning tea. Look at his wife. Come on, let's, let's go, let's go. So what converts him is not a reason argument. It's not emotion or experience or an encounter. 
it's actually seeing the testimony, the story of the changed lives of Paul and Silas. So he sees, hey, you have something that works. I want what you have. So I think it's a combination of all three with our friends. Sometimes they think they want the reason argument, and maybe they really, they really, really do, and there's a place for that. So we can give them Lennox, we can give them Timothy Keller, we can give them um, Ravi Zacharias, we can give them William Lane Craig. But more often than not, it's actually this that would change them. They say, wow, you have something that works. Uh, I can't understand what you have. You didn't, I, I, I need to have what you have. So, yep. So the question was, you know, crisis sometimes makes people go the other way. And it's like all things, like a reason argument can make someone go the other way. An emotion can make someone go the other way. And a crisis can make someone go the other way. So it goes back to this. Is it livable? So is it believable? So is it true? So if you have a crisis and, and then you lose someone and they're not a Christian... Are they in hell? Are they in hell because they didn't believe in Jesus? If you're saying yes, well, I can't live with that. I can't live with that. So I can't believe that. So it can't be true. So it works for Christians as well. So you can be a Christian. You can believe in Jesus, be really loyal. And then maybe you lose your grandmother and she wasn't a Christian. So I can't live with the idea that she's in hell. So I can no longer believe in that idea. So it can't be true. So I'm going to walk away from the faith. So several things. It means pastorally we have to be preemptive and preemptively anticipate those moments when this happens so people are already ready for it. They can live through the crisis. So for the people in our church. But what about for the non-Christians? I think, again, you have to hear, understand and feel. Until you have felt the horror of what they feel, we haven't earned the right to speak. So you've got to demonstrate you actually generally feel the horror of what they feel. And... The other thing is, um, it works both ways. Can they live with the idea that there is no God? Because if there is no God, then we're just atoms and molecules. There's no real difference between life and death, except some electrical impulses in my brain and my heart. Tsunamis are not a tragedy if there's no God. They're just events. They're just water molecules doing what water molecules do. In fact, if everything's random, this is just part of the whole randomness of life. So can I live with the idea that because there's no God, this is just an event that just happened with no meaning? So then, like I said, so the death of a loved one is utterly meaningless if there's no God because it's just what happens in a godless world. Or do I want my loved one's death to have meaning? Well, guess what? If there's a God... There's a loving, powerful meaning behind what happened, and we don't know what that is, but if there's a loving, powerful God, there is meaning and purpose. Well, that's much more livable than not having a God. That becomes much more believable that there might be a God rather than no God, or there might be much more true. So I think we can work them through that way as well, that it works both ways. If there's no God, that's actually even less livable than if there was a God. The fact that we're outraged and horrified at the death of a loved one means there must be a loving God yeah, so what, what's the danger? Well, everything has what's called the double power paradox. So whatever has the capability of doing much good also has the p- capability of doing much evil. And so the homogenous church, well, it exists whether you like it or not because um, you cannot escape homogeneity. We picked English, so now we're homogeneously English. We picked Sunday, so now we're homogeneously people are free on a Sunday morning. We picked, uh, we put men and women together, so now we're homogeneously a culture where men and women can sit together, whereas many cultures you can't do that. Are you with me? So you cannot escape homogeneity. So you might as well embrace it and use it as a tool for good rather than for evil. And realize, okay, this is what contextualization is all about. Uh, having something sharp and focused. Because the thing with contextualization is. You're going to have something, if you have something really contextualized and strategic for one group, it's really effective, but it becomes meaningless for the other group. But then you have something so abstract that it can include all groups. Well, now it's so abstract it becomes meaningless again. So you're trying to hit that 
perfect tension. So just embrace it and realize we cannot escape homogeneity. Let's embrace it and let's not be hypocrites and look at them. Well, look how homogenous you guys. No, no, we are just as homogenous. We're all doing it. So use it for good. But then realize that the evil that can be behind it, that it can um, exclude. So as long as we're self-aware and asking those questions and knowing that you always have to reinvent yourself because when your children grow up, they don't feel the same homogeneity you do and they can no longer find a belonging in your church unless you keep adapting. So the Chinese is the best one. If you're a Chinese church, guess what? You're perfect for the first generation immigrants. But when the children grow up and they don't feel Chinese, they're going to leave your church. So you have to now readapt and realize, okay, the original founding vision. So it's that classic tension that you always have between the individual and the institution. It takes an individual to see an opportunity, and, and then, but it takes an institution to make it happen. But then the institution will always be stuck unless it reinvents itself because it will, it will miss the next opportunity. So I think you've just got to keep asking those questions, knowing we cannot escape it, but we don't want to be trapped by it either. I, I love that question because, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. <laughs> and, and it's my wife who's the extrovert. And she, she kills me. She absolutely kills me. And there's a great book. It's not a Christian book. It's called Quiet. It's called The Power of Introverts in a World That Won't Stop Talking. <laughs> and from this book, I learned two things. Number one, there's a whole chapter devoted to the evangelical North American culture. So it's been set up by and for extroverts. And it makes introverts feel excluded and also less than holy because they don't want to talk to the person next to them. Uh, and and they, they don't want the songs blaring at them. They just want somewhere to hide and crawl into a corner in darkness, in quiet. So one, it showed me, wow, okay, maybe sometimes we're a bit too homogeneously set up for the extroverts. But there's another chapter saying, well... There's nothing wrong with being an introvert. Half of us are wired as introverts, other half of us are extroverts. It's a bell curve, after all. Nothing wrong with being an introvert. It's just how we are. But in life, every now and then, we're forced to act against our nature, and that's okay. Act against your nature, come out and be the extrovert, knowing that for this moment to happen, you, you had to charge yourself for this, and now you have to retreat and recharge. And so I am what my minister calls a loud introvert. I'm loud, but I'm actually a massive introvert. And so for something like this to happen, Leon had to get me a house by myself where I had to recharge last night and tonight I'm going to recharge again. So knowing the rhythms. So knowing that if my wife says, hey, let's do a barbecue, I can say, yeah, yeah, let's do a barbecue but you're going to give me the next six days off afterwards. <laughs> and do not put another barbecue on for another six days. And she gets that. So I think knowing how you're wired, work with how you're wired, knowing in life, not just in Christianity, but in all forms of life, you have to act against your nature, but that's okay, but recharge and charge for those moments. And, and the interesting thing then is introverts can be hospitable to other introverts. It's very little work. <laughs> you sit in that corner, I'll sit in that corner, and we had a great time together because we did not talk to each other. Yeah, so the question is, someone once said they had found more belonging in their bicycle club than they did at church, so are there any practical suggestions of how to create belonging in, for example, men? Well, it's one of those things where... Belonging happens very organically, and that's where the cycling club has an unfair advantage because there's already a natural behaviour they're going to cycle together that forces that allows the belonging to happen. Whereas, for especially for men, we're not doing any behaviour that's going to bond us to create the belonging. And any behaviour seems artificial and contrived, like let's do breakfast together. Uh, that seems very contrived. But I think that's that's the structure of friendships. There's always a formal and an informal element in this dialogue. So informally, these belongings should happen organically. Uh, but every now and then, just do little things that might help them. So you think, well, what do men normally want to do? I know so, uh, this is really helpful for me because I lived in Chicago for five years. Then I came back to Australia and it felt two years for Australia to feel home again. 
So for two years, I was lost. All my original friends had moved on. My church had completely changed. All the people had changed. The minister had changed. The only thing in common was a sign. You know, they really... It's like when you change an axe, you know, the head and the handle, is it still the same axe? When your church, you know, all the people left and the ministers left, is it still the same church? So I was actually lost for two years. I was actually utterly rudderless for two years. And I think what I really, really missed was on Friday night, I just wanted someone to eat a pizza worth, drink a beer worth while I watched the footy. That's all I wanted. And I just wanted a go-to guy maybe to hang around with in those idle moments. I think that's all I wanted. And I've noticed, and I'm sharing this, in Sydney, all our friends, because we make seem like, wow, we've made all these friends in all these networks, all these universes. But I've noticed the common denominator in all of them, in the child group one, in the AFL one, they've all just moved into Sydney in the last two to five years. They have no network of friends. So they're all utterly lost in this void trying to make friendships happen. So I think if you just... I, just, I don't know, I just find barbecues on a Friday just work the best because somehow you're eating together and then there's the footy and then, and, then, and then the kids start playing together and somehow there's something about a Friday night where it just begins with a beer, that's a coffee, then it turns into a pizza, that's your dinner... And before you know it, you're just hanging and chilling uh, and, and men are just staring at a fence, talking, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know if that helps. But I just find organically, Friday night was what I just, when I was most lost when I came back to Australia. I just wanted someone to hang with on a Friday night. The other thing that happens is, now that you've got kids, is you're looking for someone else who can play with your kids. So you start looking for other families and, and then that's you and your stage of life. So Stephen Bidoff says, from zero to four, as a man, you have, your, your kid is looking to the mother for, for, for leadership. So you're, you have very limited role in your kid's life from zero to four, apart from changing their nappies and reading the bedtime story. But that's really all you can do. Four to 14 is your time to shine. They are looking to you now for leadership, your kid. You're the most important person in their life from four to 14. So now you can hang around with other men whose kids are 4 to 14 and you can do things together and you find that that happens really easily. 14 onwards, according to Stephen Bidoff, your kid will now leave you behind and, and now they look to someone else for leadership. So Stephen Bidoff says what you need to do now is have a trusted friend that you steer your 14-year-old towards and make him become the mentor for your kid and now you make yourself the mentor for someone else's kid. So you start saying, hey, can I take your kid to the footy? Or can I take your kid to this or whatever? And these people say, oh, they're, they're so glad you're the one doing it, not some other mentor figure. So I think that's where... So, so men need someone to hang around with on a Friday night and then bit by bit, someone that they can raise children with. And then from 14, as their kid becomes 14, they want someone to take their kid uh, from them. Well, yeah. All right, I think... I'm out of time, whoever's a timekeeper here.